Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. On today's episode of God is Open, we are going to be covering First Clement, written by Clement of Rome. Now, this is not to be confused with Clement of Alexandria, who was a Christian and a Neoplatonist, perhaps the founder of Neoplatonism. Imagine that, a Christian founding Neoplatonism. Wow. Right, but Clement of Rome was no Neoplatonist. Clement of Rome was earlier. Clement of Rome, uh, there's indications within this text that it might have been written before 70 AD. There's a reference to sacrifices in Jerusalem, and of course, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and sacrifices ceased. So, these references to sacrifices indicate that this might be a very early document, and it's pretty clear that Clement of Rome had early Christian beliefs. He was an open theist. Now, whenever I read an ancient text, there's a few things that I look out for. I look out for their conception of God, who God is, what his attributes are, um, the, the details of his attributes. If God has all knowledge, what's the mechanism? Is it eternal, ungenerated knowledge, uh, like the classical theory of God's omniscience, or is it a visual omniscience? It's interesting that Clement of Rome doesn't really describe God as an all-knowing God. Instead, God throughout the text is an all-seeing God. All-seeing. It's a visual omniscience that is advocated by Clement of Rome. And there's no hint about this uh, uh, future eternal knowledge of all events to ever happen. God knows because God sees and God acts on what he sees. God responds to what he sees throughout this text. Other attributes of God, maybe uh, God's omnipresence is God everywhere, or omnipotence, or omnipotence. Can God do everything? Uh, attributes such as ineffability, timelessness, uh, even God's goodness. Does God respond? How does God respond? Does How does God evaluate human beings? Just anything about God is of interest to me. Also, I take a real interest in uh, their ideas of heaven and hell, uh, their idea of the afterlife, their idea of uh, the coming kingdom of God, which is a very early Christian idea that the earth would be reformed and God's kingdom would be established on earth rather than an escapism to heaven. Of course, we want to always look out for ideas of fatalism, if there's any fatalism evident in any text or any hint of Neoplatonism or just normal Middle Platonism, I guess in this case, and, and uh, Clement of Rome is a very Platonistic attitude and he is in Rome. There may be hints of Platonism, but we will take a look. Uh, interesting thing is that Clement of Rome very much resembles the authors of the Bible. And uh, here, here's a quick list of bullet points of of what I've garnered from this text of what Clement of Rome actually believed. God resides in heaven. This is a pretty standard thing throughout theology. He looks down and he sees the world. This is a visual omniscience. It harkens back to the author of Hebrews even has God watching the world, receiving information by seeing all the deeds that are done on earth. Within Clement of Rome, God is a God of love. Uh, he's not a God of anger. Uh, it's a very in control of your emotions so that you might want to contrast that to some depictions of god in the old testament in which god is moved to rage by actions of people in clement of the rome god is love such that he doesn't have anger at any of his creatures he's he's more impartial um, but he does exhibit justice he does he does punish the wicked but it doesn't seem to be out of anger within Clement of Rome. 
you see Clement's idea of predestination or God setting up the world that we live in where God sets boundaries. But those boundaries can be transgressed. For example, when Clement of Rome's describing all the sacrifices that God prescribed for the Levites, he said, we need to follow these because God appointed and ordained these things. So in Clement's mind, this predestination and ordination of all these events that God did are not fatalism. They're things that can be resisted. God's will can be resisted throughout this text. We see that over and over. God wills something. We need to conform ourselves to God's will. We shouldn't be violating God's will. We shouldn't be straying outside of God's will. God's will can be violated within Clement of Rome. You see a lot of moralistic aspects in Clement of Rome. He talks very much about behavior, how we should act. His general idea about salvation seems to be that we are saved by faith. But those people who are not truly following God and who are doing evil are not really saved. And so not only are there some people who are just evil and hate God and are not saved, but he quotes pretty thoroughly that there are people who use their mouth and say that they follow Yahweh, but their hearts aren't committed and those people aren't saved. And he's always always about making your salvation sure making sure you're acting in accordance with God's commands and dictates to ensure a forgiveness for one and that that you will be within God's number. This number is not a predestined number. As uh, one Calvinist I was dealing with on this text, he thought that any time Clement of Rome used the word number for believers, it's some sort of set number from all eternity and then everyone meets it. That's not Clement's idea. You could, you could join into the number. You could be enlisted into the number. You could be added to God's role. You see allusions to the book of life. You get added into the book of life. This was a pretty common belief in the ancient world that there is a book of life that you're added to when you become a worshiper of Yahweh and you're removed from if you fall away. Adding and removing from the role, uh, being recorded, these types of things. When you're, when you're reading in the Bible and you see something like that where something's recorded, these are divine books that are being referenced. So it looks like Clement of Rome still held these ideas of the divine book, the divine list of names. And of course, the last takeaway from Clement of Rome is how he believed uh, we, uh, what happened to us when we died, right? There's, there's this idea that we go down to the grave. And I'm reminded of Samuel being called up from the grave. There's There might be a resting place where, where the dead uh, hang out or the dead can be called up from or it's, it's a holding area, waiting for the day of resurrection in which all people will be resurrected. These are Clement's ideas. So now we'll, we'll go through the text and we'll explore a lot of these bullet points. But from this, you should already notice the open theistic elements. Not only does God respond to people's actions in real time, adding and removing them from lists of people who are saved, but also God has an active visual omniscience. God is actively watching the world to gain information about what's happening in the world. And there's a lot of praises to God throughout this text. Let's scroll all the way to the ending of this book, and then we'll kind of see the type of language that's used of God in a series of praise statements. And notice what is absent. So also when we're reading these texts, we have to look not only what is said, but what is absent, what is missing that we might expect to be there if uh, Clement of Rome, if he believed in these classical attributes. Clement 64.1, finally, may the all-seeing God, the all-seeing God, huh? 
and the Master of Spirits, the Lord of all flesh, who chose the Lord Jesus Christ, and through us him for a particular people, grant unto every soul that is called after his excellent and holy name, faith, fear, patience, long-suffering, temperance, chastity, soberness, that he they may be well-pleasing unto his name, through our high priest and guardian Jesus Christ, through whom unto him be glory and majesty, might and honor, both now and forever. Amen. Backing up, we see more praise statements. Thou, Lord and Master, has given them power and sovereignty through thine excellent and unspeakable might, that we, knowing the glory and honor with which thou hast given them, may submit ourselves unto them in nothing resisting thy will. Grant unto them, therefore, O Lord, health, peace, concord, stability, that they may administer the government which thou hast given them without failure. For thou, O heavenly Master, King of the ages, givest to the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are upon the earth. Do thou, Lord, direct their counsel according to that which is good and well-pleasing in thy sight, and administrating in peace and gentleness with godliness the power which thou hast given them, that they may obtain thy favor. Uh, this prayer is pretty interesting. He's praying for God to act towards the rulers, to get them to act in accordance with God's will. There's a strong sense that Clement believes that we pray on behalf of people for God to act in their lives, to give them room for repentance is uh, one of his phrases that he uses here. But notice this, King of Ages, you see this language uh, a few times throughout this book of Clement, King of Ages, that uh, reminds me of the depictions of El, who also is described in similar terms. Here's from Mark Smith, The Early History of God. He's talking about El. El is called the Ageless One, and he's also called the Father of Years. You are great, El, and indeed wise. Your hoary beard instructs you. The beard, so that's a reference or, or a parallel to what we see in Daniel with the flowing hair that's described in the Daniel vision. But El is described as this Father of Ages as well, and we see that in Clement. So not necessarily... A timeless idea it doesn't seem at all that Clement believes God is timeless instead God watches events on earth and reacts to them in real time is Clement's idea and this king of ages is just this common descriptor that's given to Yahweh and El in all sorts of religions he's eternal or ageless everlasting from everlasting to everlasting not not a timeless idea but I always watch for these these types of phrases about parallels that uh, might uh, also be attributed to L in other religions. So scrolling through the text, we see here that um, Clement is in Rome and uh, he's writing to Corinth. And th th this is some critical stuff for placing this book and then deciding which events are historical because later on uh, he'll talk about Paul and he kind of indicates that Paul completed his missionary journey to Spain, which uh, traditionally uh, people don't think that Paul ever completed his missionary journey to Spain. But if this book was written by Clement and it was written before 70 AD, and there's a reference to Paul completing his journey to Spain, uh, that would all indicate that that's a likely event that actually did happen. The death of Paul's recorded in a, a few different sources. Eusebius uh, is one, but they're all a lot later than Clement. And so uh, did Paul ever make it to Spain? There's a possibility, yes, if this book of Clement is accurate. Clement uses the term elect of God, which uh, he seems to use in the Jackie's Moore way. You know, Jackie's Moore 
wrote the book, Deleting Elect from the Bible, in which he goes through and shows verse by verse how elect, it's not like a election or God's just like picking and choosing any random person for any random reason. Rather, the elect is the choice, the choice individuals, the people who are most pure. You can make yourself elect, you can make yourself pure. Uh, the, the pure grapes, right? That's Those are the ones you want for your wine. You want the elect grapes. Uh, we talked about different ancient sources that use this word as well. You're building a bridge. You want the elect stones. You want the stones that are the best for building this bridge. You want to send in shock troops. You send in your elect shock troops. These people who are specifically trained have the temperament to be the first wave of attack. This is the idea of elect that Clement seems to hold to because of the way he describes how you come to God and how you can fall away based on your actions. In 1 Clement 1-2, he describes the people he's writing to as perfect and sound knowledge. They, they have perfect and sound knowledge. Imagine if that phrase was uh, attributed to Yahweh. Uh, what kind of field day people would have with this for speculating on God's attributes. But it's just used as a normal expression as applied to human beings and we see this a couple times through his work how these normal expressions are used of human beings without any special metaphysical absolutes applied or platonistic uh, ideas of perfection uh, none of these are going on in his normal use of language people are perfect in language it doesn't mean that uh they know everything that's ever happened. That just means they're they're on the right track. They they know what they're doing, know what they're saying. And then he goes on to criticize these people who he's already described as perfect in knowledge because of their falling away and their schisms. In 1 Clement 2, 3, we have this uh, phrase where he says, if any of you have committed unwilling sin, let's see what he says, being full of holy counsel and excellent zeal and with a pious confidence, you have stretched out your hands to almighty God, supplicating him to be propitious if unwillingly you had committed any sin. And so there might be an unwitting sin that Clement believes that people can commit and the people that he's writing to are asking forgiveness for these sins of ignorance that they don't even know that they might have committed. So there is a sin and ignorance in Clement's vocabulary. We see in the next verse, Clement 2.4, a reference to the number of his elect. We'll see throughout this that you could add yourself to the number. You, you could add yourself to the number. The number is a current tally of current believers on earth, not this eternal number in this eternal book of eternal names. It's a number that's dynamic, which represents current believers. This is an important point to stress because uh, um, my dealings with Calvinists, uh, not that I deal with too many Calvinists on First Clement, but they'll try to point to this number as some sort of absolute. They're importing their theology. They don't seem to have read Clement to understand that this is a dynamic number of current individuals and not all future individuals are being accounted for in this number. It's a changing number. Scrolling on, we see probably what seems to be the motivation for this letter. There's some strife. Uh, there's some unrighteousness. There's people who are, are doing wrong. And so the, the letter's purpose seems to be to set them on the straight path and to wake them up, to give them, give them a guide for correcting what's going on in the church. And he criticizes them over and over for their behavior. 
There's a large section on jealousy. Perhaps jealousy was a major issue in the church of Corinth at this time. Uh, some of his examples that he uses, that he pulls from the Bible, are a little bit of a stretch. You kind of see that in his use of biblical texts, his quotations of the biblical texts. Sometimes uh, the, the texts don't quite mean what he's trying to pull out of them. And uh, in, in, this very, in this very document, he quotes Job's friends for one of his illustrations, um, which is a huge no-no. You don't want to be quoting Job's friends for theology, uh, but he seems to think that that's uh, pretty good for his purposes, so he goes ahead and does that. Not everything about Clement is going to be on the up and up. He, he talks about a phoenix, and the phoenix, of course, is the mystical, mythical bird that uh, rises and, and dies and fire and rises again. And he treats this like it's a real animal, and he says that it keep, goes to Egypt every year, something like that. Um, uh, I, it's some of the text is not reliable. He he might himself believe it. The text might be genuine, but it might not be accurate. So he might have wrote it, but it might be him just writing what he's heard, things that he thinks, and uh, some of his biblical exegesis and knowledge of world animals might be a little off. We see in 5.5 a uh, reference to Paul and his possible journey to the West. He says, By reason of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, pointed out the prize of patient endurance after a while. At seven times in bonds, he had been driven into exile. He had been stoned. He had preached to the East and the West. He had won the noble renown, which was the reward of his faith. Having taught righteousness unto the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the West, and when he had borne his testimony before the rulers, so he departed from the world and went unto the holy place, having been found a notable pattern of patient endurance. And note, by this time, uh, they all knew about Spain. They all knew about France. Caesar had conquered Gaul by this time. That was the West. That was the West. And if this is being written in Rome, the West is not where they're at currently. So the author of First Clement thinks that Paul has gone Perhaps to Spain, where Paul had intended, if we read the Bible, that's where Paul intended to be going after his duration in Rome. Scrolling down to chapter 7, we get some indication of free will. Of course, free will. They all believed in free will. It's just evident in, in their language. If you go through the Bible highlighting all free will passages where people generally respond, react, um, make choices, that's the whole Bible. The whole Bible is that. So let's look at Clement 7, 5. Let us review all generations in turn and learn how from generation to generation the master has given a place for repentance unto them that desire to turn to him. God just doesn't cut off people who, who might repent. Yeah, God allows them and gives them space and time to repent. And Nineveh, Nineveh is actually pretty interesting. Nineveh is added as one of the examples of Gentiles. This is a Jew-centric document, which also points to a pre-70 AD document. The Jews are primary, and the Gentiles seem like tagalongs. That they seem like um, not primary recipients of this letter. First Clement seven six. Noah preached repentance, and they that obeyed were saved. Notice the preaching of repentance and then the response. And then the response by God to that. God responds to those who obey. Let's scroll up to this verse we missed up here. Clement 7.4 Let's fix our eyes on the blood of Christ and understand how precious it is 
unto the Father, because being shed for our salvation, it won for the whole world the grace of repentance. And then they go and they talk about the different people throughout the world who it's won the repentance for. And this applies to all generations. All generations can have place for repentance. And Nineveh is given as an example for that. First Clement 8, 3, 4, As I live, saith the Lord, I desire not the death of the sinner so much as his repentance. God doesn't always get what he wants, right? Uh, not everyone repents. Not all sinners repent. Some sinners die in their sin. This is Clement's theology, and he quotes the Bible for it. This is a very critical portion of his theology that he uses to convince his listeners to repent, to bring themselves back into the fold of God. 1 Clement 8, 6, seeing then that he desires all his beloved to be partakers of repentance, he confirmed it by an act of his almighty will. I can see what a Calvinist would say about this. They'd say, oh, he only desires his beloved, which is uh, just, just the elect that he's chosen from time eternal. Uh, that's not Clement's idea. Clement's idea is the whole world has access to this. All generations have access to this. Uh, it's not specific individuals and you could take yourself in and out of that number by how you act by how you behave by what you believe you're supposed to make yourself right with god bring yourself into god's will god's will is there you're supposed to align yourself with it he calls on people to act to make sure they're part of this number the very next sentence therefore let us be obedient unto his excellent and glorious will yeah because he, he wants all people to be saved so we need to uh, act let us set before enoch this is 9 3 who being found righteous in obedience was translated and his death was not found and so this found faithful language was interesting to me so god finds these people faithful these people act in accordance with god's will and god evaluates them and finds them faithful this this sounds like an action this sounds like uh, god evaluates them this is not a time eternal declaration these are people who act in accordance with God's will and then are found faithful. God is evaluating in real time as we see throughout this text. That's one thing to stress about reading these ancient documents is it's very important to see what they say and what wording they use and try to form in our minds their picture of God, even though it might not conform to our particular picture of God. So many times people just override the text with their own imaginations um, that the Calvinist I was talking about. He could read this entire book of Clement and say, oh, God has eternal omniscience of all events with zero, zero indication anywhere of that. He'll read into these number statements, an eternal set number that never changes. And it's an assumption brought into the text that the text screams against, it screams against. He'll read into this text eternal knowledge of all events in the future, whereas the text exclusively describes God as the all-seeing God, God's visual omniscience, which was the common type of omniscience in a lot of ancient religions, including Israel. Israel had a visual omniscience. And these people, the same people, they'll take absence of any statements that directly address what they want to believe, They'll take it as evidence that their belief is evident in this text, which it's just not. Just what's being described here. You'll, you'll see statements about God being in heaven and then watching the world. Be God being in heaven and watching? Watching? Is, is that a classical notion of what happens? 
Speaking of that, it's not even crystal clear that Clement didn't think that God has a body. There's a reference to God's perfect hand, God's perfect hand, which seems to me, it seems to me that it's not metaphorical. There's a lot of statements in here about hands and eyes, which are definitely uh, metaphorical, like God can protect you by a strong arm. But there is one reference, and we'll get to that a little bit later, about God's perfect hand, which doesn't seem to me metaphorical as much as it is a physical and it's it's in the context of man being made in the image of god which makes me wonder maybe clement here believes that god has a body this whole passage that we are in is talking about god rewarding people for their acts for their actions people act and then god responds to their actions god's a responsive god a very open theistic idea that god watches then evaluates and then responds Scrolling down to Clement 12.7, there's a very interesting paragraph that talks about Rahab. If we remember the story of Rahab, she hid the spies and then um, used, let, let them go in exchange for her life and the life of her family. It states this, And moreover, they gave her a sign that she should hang out from her house a scarlet thread, thereby showing beforehand that through the blood of the Lord there shall be redemption unto all of them that believe and hope in God. And so Clement does this thing that uh, it seems fairly common in the New Testament in which Old Testament events prefigure. They mirror events that are going to happen in the future as if uh, God has plans and these events are foreshadowing what will happen. So it's not quite clear exactly how Clement treats these ancient texts, but he seems to take it as an indication of prefiguration of Jesus, these events in the Old Testament. Maybe they're divine events that God set up this situation in order to illustrate this future truth. Might be Clement's idea of how the Old Testament is set up. That's not to say that he doesn't take the Old Testament literally. He seems to think that all the events happened as described. They're literal events. Scrolling down to 1 Clement 16.3, we see a reference to Isaiah 53 as a reference to Jesus. So Isaiah 53, if you turn back and read it, it's not quite clear that the text is actually talking about Jesus rather than Israel, who is uh, described throughout the text as being lowly in status. Um, but it's been used by theologians, church fathers, to be a prophecy of Jesus is probably used in the New Testament to the Ethiopian who is reading a scroll of Isaiah. Probably Isaiah 53 is what they're covering as a prophecy, a foreshadowing, foretelling of Jesus. Um, and Clement uses that as well as a reference to Jesus. Scrolling further, we're in chapter 17, and it seems like Clement is is setting up this theory of uh, everyone has sinned, all people have sinned. And he even puts a little statement in about Job has sinned, which is funny. It seems like he had to defend the idea that Job was not perfect. And he points to Job 14 is his quote. His text seems a little bit different than our Bible. And he says, Job said this, No man from filth, no, not though his life be but for a day, has, has not sinned. You know, that every, everyone's guilty who has ever been born. The actual text might be a little bit different. Job 14.1, Man who is born of woman is few of a few days and is full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. So Job's talking about the fragility of human life, that we live only a short time before we're dead and gone, and uh, we live in a world full of toil, 
especially back then. Back then, they didn't have uh, electricity or internet, and and they couldn't uh, go on vacations to Europe or anything like that. Uh, they had to work. They had to work all the time. Uh, they dealt with a lot of pain, suffering. They didn't have modern medicine. And so life is hard. Life is hard is what he's saying. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of unclean? There is not one. Job's saying, why are you wasting your time on me? My life is short. I'm going to die. My life is full of pain, troubles, and suffering. What's the point? What are you doing here? So it's, it's not quite clear that Job is uh, using these phrases, these sentences in the same way Clement wants to. Clement wants to use it as a sin passage. Not evident that it is in the original. Scrolling down, we hit chapter 19. Let us behold him in our mind and let us look with our eyes from our soul into his long-suffering will. Let us note how free from anger he is towards all his creatures. So God's being depicted here as full of love, not full of any anger or bitterness and in full control of his, his person. Long-suffering is a very interesting adjective. It uh, implies time. Time. He's not timeless. God is long-suffering. He endears things for a long time, things that should get to normal people, uh, but uh, he endures them. The whole passage talks about God's management of the universe, that God directs the things uh, that we see in our day-to-day -day life. He the heavens are moved by his direction and obey him in peace. Day and night accomplish the course assigned to them by him without hindrance to one another. So he talks about a lot of the same type of ideas that we find in Job. God is the governor of the universe and he sets things up and he sends, sets bounds and uh, he sets the rules. And then everything performs according to the rules that God set. Moreover, the inscrutable depths of the abysses and the unutterable statutes of the nether regions are constrained by the same ordinances. The basin of the boundless sea gathered together by his workmanship unto its reservoirs pass not the barriers which it is surrounded, but even as he ordered it, it does so. Probably in allusions to Proverbs 8.29, when he assigned the sea to its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, God is setting up parameters, and the natural world we see around us does not transgress those parameters. They, they follow the rules that God has set up. It's not necessarily a meticulous micromanagement of all details and all atoms rather than setting up rules that function like clockwork. It's setting up a clock mechanism for the universe around us so it just operates smoothly without uh, having to micromanage or, or manual input, as we would say. All these things the creator and master of the universe ordered to be in peace and conquered, doing good unto all things. We're at 2011. So there's, there's a huge passage about all the things that God has set up, ordained, um, made to happen, everything's being controlled or everything's being set up by God, God's sovereign over the world. Uh, this would be a pretty good place uh, if if Clement believed in uh, uh, Calvinistic ideas of divine micromanagement of all things, divine determinism, this would be a very good place for him to put those, those notions in. You know, the Calvinists are pretty proud of that. And uh, they go on and on talking about these things. That's, that's what they champion. That's what they value. Clement doesn't seem to have the same values that the modern-day Calvinist would. This would be a good place for eternal divine foreknowledge of all events. That if, if God's structuring the world, um, and it's talking about all the things that he does to structure the world, 
one divine foreknowledge of all events and that might fit there but it's absent we don't do not see that with all this in mind there is a chaotic element and that is man clement he adds this look you brethren lest the benefits which are many turn into judgment to all of us if we walk not worthily of him and he says so based on our actions if, if we're not following these ordinances that god has set up there, there might be adverse consequences that we are going to suffer. And do those things which are good and well-pleasing in his sight with concord. For he has said in a certain place, The Spirit of the Lord is a lamp searching the closets of the belly. God searches. God tries to figure things out. God's, God's watching. Let's look at this uh, verse 21.3. Let us see how near he is and how nothing escapes him of our thoughts and our devices which we make. Uh, 21.4. It is right, therefore, that we should not be deserters from his will. So we can, we can desert his will. We can leave his will and go do our own thing. We can be chaotic and press against this order that God's created. But God... Clement says, is watching us, and he's searching our thoughts, and he's searching our intentions. And if we're going to be doing that, God's going to notice. God's going to notice if we're going to do that. How is there a doubt in anyone's mind that Clement is not an open theist? There is no doubt. He is an open theist. God is watching us and trying to evaluate us. He's testing us. He's searching us to figure out what we're going to do, and then he's going to respond accordingly. This is a visual omniscience. This is testing for knowledge. This is God searching the world. This is people pressing against God's eternal ordinances and his eternal plans, violating his will. Just a little bit down, uh, here's 1 Clement 21.9. For he is a searcher out of the intents and desires, who breath is in us, and when he listens, he shall take away. God's searching us. God is looking for our intents and desires. This is an active scanning of the world, seeing how we're going to act. Therefore, we should act in accordance with God's will. We should modify our behavior and act with, with our focus on God, because if we don't, God's going to figure that out, and then he's going to take our breath away, probably meaning to kill us, maybe, or he's going he's gonna to put down the wicked. The idea of eternal foreknowledge of all events is very contrary to this idea. It do doesn't work together uh, where all our events are set in stone from time, eternity, and God knows what we will do in the future. Uh, yeah, those are things we will do. That, that's contrary from God searching out our thoughts and our desires and then responding to those thoughts and desires. In the eternal divine foreknowledge model, there's, you know, whatever's going to happen is, is going to happen. Whereas in this model, you're supposed to change God. You're supposed to act in such a way that God's going to respond to you. Your, your events in your life are not set from time eternal. You have control over whether you want to violate God's will or not. You have control over the future. Here's a good verse, 23.1. The Father who is pitiful in all things and ready to do good has compassion on them that fear him and kindly and lovingly bestows his favors on them that draw nigh unto him with a single mind. And so God responds to people. People act and God responds. And so you can save yourself. In Clement, uh, you can save yourself. Of course, God's given room for repentance. God hasn't killed you outright. God's given you 
uh, the time frame to repent and to come to him. Scrolling down to 1 Clement 25.2, this is his reference to the phoenix, which he thinks is an actual bird that exists. He says, there is a bird which is named the phoenix, this being the only one of its kind, so there's only one, there's only one of this animal, lives for 500 years, so it lives for 500 years, right? And when it has now reached the time of its dissolution that it should die, it makes for itself a coffin of frankincense and mirror. So the kind of the same things that Jesus was given. Uh, the phoenix runs around and he grabs some of this stuff and then he builds himself a little coffin. And then he dies in it. And then there's a worm. And this worm, of course, it sprouts wings and uh, something about Egypt. I don't know. Uh, I, I think Clement's wrong here. And this is a good reason to think that Clement, first Clement's not inspired scripture. It's a mythical creature that probably doesn't exist. Clement 27.2 should be on our radar. He says, He that commands not to lie, much more shall he himself not lie, for nothing is impossible with God save to lie. Clement seems to take the New Testament reference to it being impossible for God to lie, and he does what a lot of modern Christians do, where he makes that a universal, that God can't lie in any way whatsoever, over all topics, always and forever. Whereas the reference to it being impossible for God to lie... Whereas in context, the reference to God being impossible for him to lie is in the context of an eternal oath, uh, which he performs certain actions to ensure his oath, of which it's impossible for him to lie. So you, you typically don't have to uh, do these oaths to ensure that you're not going to lie if you're, by your very nature, it's impossible for you to lie. But uh, Clement seems to universalize this text and kind of think that God cannot lie under any circumstance, and uh, that's the one exception to his omnipotence. God could do everything except for this one thing, everything but one. You see a reference to all things are nigh unto him, which is probably not a time reference. It's probably a space reference. Remember back to an earlier passage where he says God is near, and so he's searching you. It's saying God is actively involved in this universe. He's not afar off. He, he knows what you're doing, and he has uh, active and immediate knowledge of their actions and activity on earth all things are nigh unto him this is of course in the context of people doing good things reforming their own behavior uh you know it's it's about seeing people's evil actions so it's not about time it's like not about oh um god's sense of uh, space time is different than us and that uh you know, that he experienced minutes and seconds different or he's timeless or anything like that. It's a spatial reference that God has power in order to understand and see what we're doing, where we're going and who we're doing whatever with to the furthest depths of the earth. And there's a lot of references that he pulls out in this text to those statements where no one can flee from his presence. First Clement 27.6, this is still in the same context of all things are nigh. All things are in his sight, and nothing escapes his counsel. Hmm, more visual omniscience. God is watching the world. This is his idea. First Clement 27.7, seeing that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day uttereth word unto night, and night proclaimeth knowledge unto night. And there are neither words nor speeches whose voices are not heard. God hears all our prayers. God sees all our deeds. First Clement 28.1, Since therefore all things are seen and heard, let us fear him and forsake the abominable lusts of evil works, that we may be shielded by his mercy. 
from the coming judgments. Notice that it's it's not uh, because God knows all past, present, and future, um, and all things are known to Him from all eternity. Therefore, we need to make sure that we're on the right side of history. Anything like that? No, it's it's an act of watching. That since all, therefore, all things are seen and heard. No prayer goes unheard. God's knowledge is gained from outside himself. It's not ungenerated knowledge. This is not classical omniscience. God gets experiences from outside himself, violating the classic classic attributes of simplicity, immutability, impassibility, ineffability, timelessness. All these things are violated by this notion that God experiences the world, gains knowledge through experience. Scrolling down, whether shall one depart or where shall one flee from him that embraces the universe? Probably a reference to this being nigh to all people, um, being covering the whole world with surveillance or, or being uh, close to all people in order to know everything that they're doing. Not necessarily an omnipresence reference where God occupies all square inches of all space wherever. Uh, just that God has active surveillance over the entire world seems to be the idea. First Clement 29.2 is an interesting reference. It looks like Clement is using the LXX or the Dead Sea Scrolls where he's talking about the verse in Deuteronomy where God fixes the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. Of course, the Masoretic text has according to the number of the sons of Israel, which makes no sense. So Clement is quoting probably the more accurate translation. This is why I like the ESV for the Old Testament is because it incorporates probably a more accurate Old Testament text than the Masoretic. It talks about the numbers of the angels of God. This is a reference to these these deities, what we could call them deities, these, these divine creatures who rule over the different people groups. Different people groups worship different angels or demons or divine creatures. And we see in the Ascension Psalm, Psalm 82, in which God regains control of the world from these, these, uh, these gods, lowercase g, gods, who have mismanaged their areas. We scroll down to 1 Clement 31, we see his rejection of perseverance of the saints. This is this Calvinistic idea that if you're elect, you'll continue on through the end. Uh, but no, we, we have a special portion with the Holy God. He says, seeing then that we are the special portion of a Holy God, let us do all things that pertain unto holiness, forsaking evil things, abominable and impure embraces, drunkenness, oh, no drunkenness, and tumults, and hateful lust, abominable adultery, hateful pride. Why? Because God resists the proud and gives grace to the lowly. And he goes on to say that we're being justified by works and not by words. So we, God's special portion, have to act in accordance with moral standards or else we risk rejection. Scrolling down to 1 Clement 31.3, this is talking about Isaac. This is another one of those passages where human beings are referenced with some language that, if applied to God, would be taken as proof positive of Platonic attributes. Isaac, with confidence as knowing the future, was led a willing sacrifice. This is the idea we see in the New Testament that Abraham... Abraham was thinking that God would raise Isaac from the dead. So it's ascribing motivations to characters in the text that aren't present in the original text as uh, maybe mitigation techniques or trying to say this is, this is their thought process when they're going through this. Clement seems to be doing the same thing. Uh, 
I guess. I guess that's uh, one way to look at it, uh, but I don't know where he's getting this. Uh, he seems to be making it up. But just the language, the wording is interesting. Isaac, with confidence, as knowing the future, was led a willing sacrifice. Isaac, knowing the future. I guess I guess he's omniscient. But the point in context, of, of course, is that God has plans. God is going to bless the ones who are loyal to him. We see a reference to the faith works dichotomy if we scroll down to Clement 32.4. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works, which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith whereby the Almighty God justifies all men that have ever been from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This goes towards uh, Clement's idea of you know, you, you got to act in accordance with following God. That's your, your heart needs to be set on the goal. You can't be just doing things in vain or uh, doing things in a perfunctory manner, which you're just kind of rolling through the motions. Your heart's got to be towards God in faith, and then God's the one who justifies. But God does take a look at our actions uh, when he evaluates who we are. Scrolling down, Clement entreats us to uh, do good works. He says, For by his exceedingly great might he established the heavens, and in his incomprehensible wisdom he set them in order. And the earth he separated from the water that surrounded it, and he set it firm on the sure foundation of his own will. And the living creatures which walk upon it he commanded to exist by his ordinance. This is all power claims. God did all these things by his power. God is being attributed all the power, authority, and dare I say, sovereignty. Having before created the sea and the living creatures therein, he enclosed it by his own power. Above all, as the most excellent and exceedingly great work of his intelligence, with his sacred and faultless hands, he formed man in the impress of his own image. So this is the reference to hands, which makes me wonder, is this a reference to God having a body? Perhaps with his sacred and faultless hands, he formed man in an impress of his own image. So it seems to be a contrast to mankind, uh, how God forms mankind in his own image with his sacred and faultless hands. God's hands are like ours, except for in the fact that they're divine hands, they're faultless hands, they're, they're above ours. So it makes me think that this is an actual visual image that he's he's getting at here. Of course, I could be wrong. It could be metaphorical. It could be uh, figurative, like my hands can do things. King David's hands are going to touch the water, meaning that King David's reign is going to be all the way to the oceans. That type of language. It could be that. It doesn't seem that way. We, ha we always have to contend with the idea that in ancient Israel, a lot of them believed God had a body, and you see the early church fathers fighting this belief throughout their works. So was Clement one of them? Well, we know Clement was an open theist. Let's, let's hear him again. Seeing then that we have this pattern, let us conform ourselves with all diligence to his will. So we need to conform to God's will. God's will doesn't control all things. God's will is a set pattern that we need to follow. We need to make ourselves conform to God's will. God's will just doesn't overrule everything. God doesn't always get what he wants. As Clement has written before, um, we need to respond to God, and God will in turn respond to us. It's a give-and-take relationship. Reinforcing this, 34.5, let our boast and our confidence be in him. Let us submit ourselves to his will. 
Let us mark the whole host of his angels, how they stand by and minister unto his will. So he's saying, hey, let's let's look at the example of these angels who minister unto his will, who, who, uh, who conform themselves and perform daily activities in accordance with what God wants. He's saying we need to do that too. We need to conform ourselves with God's will. We need to minister to God. This ministering to God sounds like God's gaining from us. This is another relational aspect that's denied in Neoplatonism, in Calvinism. God can't gain from anyone outside himself. But in Clement, the angels minister to his will. That means the angels praise God. God's getting something out of this. We could be made partakers. Clement writes, Ye let us ourselves then be gathered together in concord with intentness of heart cry unto him as from one mouth earnestly that we may be partakers of his great and glorious promises that you know it then goes on to talk about the great things that god has prepared for those who await him life in immortality splendor in righteousness truth and boldness faith and confidence temperance and satisfaction on all these things fall under our apprehension and here's that Calvinist's favorite verse that they think they if this proves their theology. They think that these two verses prove that Clement was uh, closed to this, that Clement believed that there's a set number of people who are going to be saved. Ignore all the other verses. Ignore everything we've already talked about, all the other evidences of what Clement believed about God, how God acts, reacts, how God's will is violated, how God can be trespassed against. God could set boundaries that humankind can press against and, and go outside. How God has a visual omniscience of all things. God searches and God tests as things are occurring and then reacts in real time. This is Clement's picture of God. And this verse, I hate to break it to the Calvinists, does not contradict that. 35.3, what then think you are the things preparing for them that patiently await him? The creator and father of ages, father of ages, note that term, the All-Holy One himself knows their number and their beauty. So what is this talking about? Is it talking about the, the great things that are being made? That God knows the number and beauty of the things that are being made? Is it just about classes? Like um, you're going to get ice cream and then you're going to get candy and you're going to get laser tags. So those are three things. God knows the number and the beauty of those things. Or is it about a specific number of people? God knows the number and the beauty of a specific number seven million five hundred and thirty three people uh god knows that number and that number is going to be the number that's saved and no other number that, that doesn't seem to me what's going on here it could be the number and beauty of the people that are currently saved because the number is referred to in this text as a current tally of current believers let's go find that real quick clement 58 2 Receive our counsel, and you shall have no occasion of regret. For as God lives, and the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and the Holy Spirit, and these living, these living words, God is dynamic, God is living. God's not a stone idol. God's not the God of immutability. In the Christian Bible, in the Jewish Bible, God is a dynamic living God who lives, and he can do the things that the stone idols cannot. He could smell. God could smell in the Bible. God could smell fragrances the the fragrance after the flood floats up to god and he smells the pleasing aroma god can smell god can do these things who are the faith and the hope of the elect so surely shall he who with lowliness of mind and instant in gentleness has without regretfulness performed the ordinance and commandments that are given by god 
So you got to perform the ordinances. You got to perform the commandments. Be enrolled. Enrolled. That sounds like that book we're talking about, the Divine Book of Names. Be enrolled and have a name among the number of them that are saved through Jesus Christ. So this number is a current tally of current people on earth, and you can enroll yourself into that number. You could add to that number. It's not a static number as the Calvinist presupposes into their own text. Through whom is the glory unto him forever and ever. Amen. Going back to Clement 35.4, Let us therefore contend that we may be found in the number of those that patiently await him to the end that we may be partakers of his promised gifts. So what's he saying here? Is he saying that maybe our name might be on this divine, immutable number and list of names that are from time eternity? Maybe we might be found there. Maybe, maybe we might. Maybe we, we won't. We won't really know. But uh, no, he's not doing that at all. He's saying that we need to persevere. We need to do What's right in our name can be added into this number. We will be found among this dynamic number of the people God currently knows are followers of his. But how shall this be, dearly beloved, if our mind be fixed through faith towards God, if we seek out those things which are well-pleasing and acceptable to him, if we accomplish such things as beseems his faultless will and follow their way of truth. So how, how do we become one of this number? Uh, we have faith in God and we follow his ordinances. But scrolling down, we might have beat that horse to death. Uh, we got uh, Clement 36.1. So there is there is a purpose of Jesus, and Jesus is a helper in our weakness. And he writes this, the guardian and helper of our weakness. This is Jesus Christ, the high priest. Through him, let us look steadfastly unto the heights of heaven. So one of the purposes of Jesus is to help people who can't overcome on their own. They're, they're weak in the flesh. Like Paul says that uh, he does what he doesn't want, want to do. And I think we all experience that from time to time that, you know, we're, we're compelled to do things. I might like drink like seven Cokes in a day. I didn't really want to, but I, but I kind of did, but really probably shouldn't be doing that. We come to Clement 38.3, scrolling down, there's a statement here that it might sound like predestination, that God prepared benefits before we were ever born. Yeah, that just means that God's been preparing benefits for a long time. And uh, this was talked about in the time of Jesus, in the time of Paul. Clement wasn't even born by the time Jesus is put to death. And so before he's even born, Jesus is talking about these benefits that are being prepared for believers. He says, in my house is many mansions. I don't see this as uh, I don't see this as uh, divine predestination and and our names are the ones that God prepared for specifically that Chris's name was on this door from time eternal. No, he's pre preparing benefits. There's there's many in in my house are are many mansions in my house are many rooms, and uh, we can we could be part of that. We could be assigned to one of those rooms if we're part of that number. We scroll down to uh, 39.3, and he starts quoting Job's friends about the weaknesses of mortals. Okay, don't don't be quoting Job's friends for your theology. Clement, Clement, what are you doing? Clement uses Job's friends as, as a theological point. He says, For as much then as these things are manifest beforehand, the things said by Job's friends, and we have searched into the depths of the divine knowledge. He's still talking about Job's friends. We ought to do all things in order, as many as the Master has commanded us to perform at their appointed seasons. Remember, Job's friends were, were fatalists, or they, they, they were Calvinists of the day. They said that uh, all people get what they deserve, and God micromanages and ensures divine justice is divvied out on a one-for-one -one basis or right away. 
Uh, sometimes there's delayed judgment maybe, but uh, everyone gets what they deserve. Clement does seem to hold this idea, everyone gets what they deserve. There's uh, some sort of punishment in the here and now. It's not, it's not all after the fact. Although there will be a general resurrection in which people are judged, there are present consequences to belief and dis disbelief. We get to chapter 40 and he starts talking about the things that God has appointed. And if you're a Calvinist, what's your mind thinking? That these these appointed, ordained things are are predetermination. These things are, are fatalistically determined from time eternal to happen. But that's not how Clement uses this language. He says, now the offerings and ministrations he commanded to be performed with care and not to be done rashly or in disorder, but at fixed times and seasons, 43, and where by whom he would have them performed, he himself fixed by his supreme will that all things being done with piety according to his good pleasure might be acceptable to his will. So God's appointed it. He's ordained it. Uh, he fixed it with his supreme will. So you would think maybe, you know, you're a Calvinist, you're reading this, you'd think, oh, uh, this is predestination. Uh, no one can violate these things he's predestined. That's not the case. That's not the case. Clement 41.1, let each of you brethren in his own order give thanks unto God, maintaining a good conscience and not transgressing the appointed rule of his service, but acting with all seamlessness. He, so he's warning them. He's saying, all right, so God's appointed all these things. Let's do them. Let's make sure that we're in line with God's will. Remember, throughout Clement, we could resist God's will. We could do things other than what God wants. God doesn't always get what he wants in Clement. One of these things is sacrifice. So Clement's still talking about sacrifice, which indicates to me this text predates the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD. That, that's what I, I'm not the only one who thinks this. Most critical scholarship put this later. Um, they have reasons for that, and they might argue that this is maybe um, projecting yourself into the past, saying, you know, in the past, really, uh, the center of worship is Jerusalem, and that's the only place for sacrifice. This is an example of God's predetermination. But it seems to me, from reading this, that uh, Clement is still advocating sacrifice in Jerusalem for atonement of sins. The sacrificial law, the Jewish rites, the Jewish rites of worship have not been abolished in the mind of Clement. Clement is a good Jew following Jewish Christianity and continuing this tradition of sacrifice. This is one of the things that uh, God has ordained and not doing them leads to your death. Therefore, they who do anything contrary to the seemly ordinance of his will receives death as a penalty. This is in context of sacrifice in Jerusalem. We have a good traditional Jew writing Clement. Let's scroll down. We're at uh, Clement 44.2. And uh, so finally, we got someone with foreknowledge. Hmm. Huh. Huh. So who has foreknowledge? Is it, is it God? Is, does God have complete foreknowledge? Complete foreknowledge. That, that seems like a very useful phrase to classical theists. If God has complete foreknowledge, what does that mean? Ah, uh, that God knows everything from time eternal, ungenerated, uh, knowledge that's inherent in his being and uh, not got from outside himself. That's, that's what complete foreknowledge means in their vocabulary. People have it. Inclement people have complete foreknowledge. This is another one of those times where phrases are being used in normal circumstances of normal human beings that if applied to God would be taken as something else. And it just serves as a reminder of how much of our own theology we force into the text of the Bible when we're reading the Bible. Uh, we should read the Bible normally. 
and not just uh, look and, and look for little phrases that reaffirm our priors and just assume our meanings into those phrases. We need to be consistent in our use of language. Unless uh, there's guiding context that suggests our reading, we need to try to figure out what the default reading is going to be. And in ancient Israel, in ancient Judaism, it was not metaphysics. Metaphysics is not their standard reading of any text. We're, we're doing wrong. We're doing wrong by the Bible if we assume these metaphysics into the text. Clement 45.8, we find another reference to maybe this book of life. He says this, But they that have endured patiently in confidence, inherited glory and honor, they were exalted and had their names recorded by God in their memorial forever and ever. So there's the book of life, the people who uh, serve God and have died, and their names are in this memorial, this divine book. If you guys haven't seen the Seventh-day Adventists, a sci-fi show called The Record Keeper, go watch it. It's about this divine book. Great sci-fi, great open theistic message. Scrolling down to 46.3, this is a clear reference to elect being used as a synonym for peer. Remember when we first started this chapter, he's writing to the elect, and the Calvinists would take elect as uh, you, you, and you are picked rather than the traditional reading as argued by Jack Heese Moore in his book, uh, Deleting Elect from the Bible, that elect is a synonym for choice. You pick the choice grapes. You pick the choice rocks. You pick the choice troops for your frontal assault. He says this, and again, he says in another place, with the guiltless man, thou shall be guiltless, and with the elect, thou shall be elect, and with the crooked, you shall deal crookedly. And so, Always watch how Clement rephrases verses in the Bible and how he writes differently than the text that has come down to us. Those changes are of significance. And in this case, he's using elect, whereas in the where he's quoting from, uses the word peer. You know, you act elect. You be elect with those who are elect. You deal crookedly with those who are crookedly. You, you conform yourself uh, to your situation. And elect is being used as something you could conform yourself into or out of. It, it's a state of being. Clement 46.8, this is another place we need to pay particular attention to how Clement changes the language of the Bible. Um, and uh, this one actually acts in conjunction with what we just talked about. Whereas uh, Jesus says that, uh, you know, it's better that a millstone be tied around your neck. You're thrown into the water. You're killed. It's better that that happens rather than you pervert or you make a little one stumble. Clement uses the word pervert, pervert mine elect. Instead of make your little one stumble, pervert one of my elects. So one of the elect can be perverted and turned aside, can, can stumble in Clement's theology. We're now down to 1 Clement 50, verse 2. He says, all the generations from Adam until this day have passed away. But they that by God's grace were perfected in love dwell in the abode of the pious and they shall be made manifest in the visitation of the kingdom of God. We got multiple concepts going on here. There's an abode of the pious, which I would think would be uh, Sheol. There would be two parts of, of, of hell in uh, ancient literature where there's a place where the pious people go. Remember Abraham's bosom in the parables of Jesus. And then secondly, all these people are made manifest in the visitation of the kingdom of God. This is kingdom theology. There's going to be a restored earth 
in which the kingdom of God is going to be inhabited by people who have served God throughout time eternal. There's going to be a general resurrection. We see elsewhere in 1st Clement where he talks about the earth being restored. We scroll down, we get more of this uh, faith works dichotomy. Uh, he says this, for all our transgressions, this is uh, 51 verse 1, which we have committed through any of the wiles of our adversary, let us entreat that we may obtain forgiveness. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for forgiveness and God forgives us. If we don't, um, we're in trouble. We probably uh, you know, need to get that forgiveness. If we don't, we might perish, we might die. One example that he uses to illustrate this is none other than the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which seems like Clement takes the free will approach. So let's read that there. This is 51.5. Pharaoh and his host and all the rulers of Egypt, their chariots and their horsemen were overwhelmed in the depths of the Red Sea and perished for none other reason, for no other reason, no other reason, but because their foolish hearts were hardened. Oh, that's that's the reason. He's saying, don't harden your heart. Uh, repent, ask for forgiveness, turn to God, or else you'll be like these foolish Egyptians who for no other reason than their hearts were hardened, perished. He's saying, don't be like them. So they could have been uh, like you, right? And that, that's, that's the corollary that they could have not hardened their hearts. There is also a reference to the events in Exodus 32. I know we've covered this a lot. There's not much to glean from this. Uh, there's there's a pretty much a summary paragraph that uh, uses some of perfection language. Uh, God repents. God uh, listens to Moses. And Moses is described as unsurpassable perfection. So listen to this. Oh, mighty love. This is referring to the acts of Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses said, if you're going to kill these people, kill me as well. And this helps persuade God. Moses is acting as a, a mediator and he's acting in a sense of love for his people. Oh, mighty love. Oh, unsurpassable perfection. The servant is bold with his master. So Moses is being bold to God. He's standing up to God. Moses is being adversarial towards God. The servant is bold with his master. He asks forgiveness for the multitude, or he demands that himself also be blotted out with them. Clement says we're to use this as an example for our own behavior, and not much else from that example. Down to 54.3, he talks about the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Thus they have done and will do that live as citizens of that kingdom of God, which brings no regrets. So kingdom of God is linked to the earth and the fullness of the earth. Probably a reference to the restored kingdom that we see in Revelation 21. The Gentiles always get side notes, uh, 51.1, but to bring forward examples of Gentiles. And then he just kind of throws out random statements and not really any names of Gentiles. He doesn't really care about Gentiles. Their side note, um, they're present in this book, but as um, not primary. The Jews are primary, his audience, and the Gentiles are tagalongs. These are the God-fearers. Seems to be in an era, era of Jewish dominance of the church, and therefore that also points to a pre 70 AD, 80 date on this, this document. We get to more language about God and God's knowledge. And so what, what, what do we think this statement is? I ask, we should all know by now Clement's idea of God's omniscience. It's a visual omniscience. God sees and therefore God knows. God tests and therefore God knows. God actively watches the world and then responds in real time to events as they occur. It's not eternal knowledge of all things that ever happens. 
And so he's talking about Esther. And uh, in the book of Esther, there's a Greek Esther, which actually references God. It's a longer version of Esther. But in the, in the actual book of Esther, there's not really any references to God. There might be allusions maybe, but uh, God's not really a figure in the non-Greek version of Esther. But he says this of this, For through her fasting and her humiliation, she entreated the all-seeing master. So it's probably referencing that prayer in Greek Esther. And we'll have to cover that prayer someday. Notice this, the all-seeing master. So God is all-seeing. This is a visual omniscience. The wording matters. The wording we need to care about, we need to take seriously. This is his view of who God is. God knows because he's all-seeing. God sees all events on earth. God is nigh. God is close. There's nowhere we can flee from God. This is Clement's idea of God. Not eternal, timeless, outside in the void, knowing all things from time eternity. We get zero sense of that. God is actively scanning the world. The God of ages, there again, though that's that language that we've talked about in the first part of this episode, God of ages. And he, this is God, seeing the humility of her soul, delivered the people for whose sake she encountered the peril. So she prays to God and uh, she acts in accordance and then God sees and then God acts. So it's, it's not an eternal knowledge of everything she's ever going to do. God sees and then responds to what he sees her do. We use this as an example. And so this is a prayer example in Clement's idea. Prayer actually works and God's able to do things and accomplish objectives that, that we advocate to him to do. God will respond to us and do the things that we suggest God do. Therefore, let us also make intercession for them that are in any transgression that forbearance and humility may be given them to the end that they may yield not to us but unto the will of God. Let's notice the language. We pray for others that they may yield to God. They're currently resisting God and we're asking that God intervene, God uh, give them room for repentance, give them humility, uh, work in their lives so that they will yield to God's will. God's will is being violated in this scenario. More talk about the will of God in the next verse. We're in 56.2. The admonition which we give one to another is good and exceedingly useful for it joins us under the will of God. Remember, we need to conform ourselves to God's will. God set up all these systems. God set up the world to work within the, his bounds, within his ordinances. These are his firm decrees. Uh, um, and we need to conform ourselves to them. We, we could resist it. We could go outside it. We could violate it. But if we want to be in good standing with God, we're going to conform ourselves to God's will. This is Clement's theology. Scrolling down to 1 Clement 57.2, we find another reference to the book of life. For it is better for you to be found little in the flock of Christ and to have your name on God's roll than to have exceeding honor and yet be cast out from the hope of him. So there's a divine scroll, a divine roll, uh, which our names are recorded on. Again in 58.2, so surely shall he who with lowliness of mind and instant in gentleness has without regretfulness performed the ordinances and commandments that are given by God be enrolled and have a name among the number of them that are saved through Jesus Christ. We already talked about this one. You could be added to the number. You could be added to the list. You could be added to the role. This book, this list of names is dynamic as it is in the Bible. Your name could be added. Your name could be removed based on your actions. This is not an eternal list. This is a list, an ongoing list of those who are faithful and righteous. 
In fact, this number has to be guarded by God, scrolling down to 59.2. So it's not an eternal number that's set from all eternity. This number can be actively poached against. And so we shall ask with insistency of prayer and supplication that the creator of the universe may guard intact until the end the number that has been numbered of his elect throughout the whole world. This is a current tally of people on earth who are followers of God. And we pray that God guard this number, that God uh, do his utmost to make sure that people don't slip out of this number. God needs to guard it. God doesn't have an eternal list of names. It's not in Clement's theology. The next verse, uh, God is said to who alone abides in the highest of the lofty. So is this a reference to God being in heaven and looking down. It goes on to say, who looks into the abyss, who scans the works of man. This is another reference to God's visual omniscience of the world, his constant and continuous evaluation of events that are going on. This is a consistent theme throughout the Bible and throughout Clement. This is his idea of omniscience, God's active visual omniscience, seeing all the works of man as they happen and evaluating them in real time. Who does God choose? Of course, those who love Jesus Christ. This is uh, what he says. The creator and overseer of every spirit who multiplies all the nations upon the earth and has chosen out from all men those that love you through Jesus Christ. Not monergism going on. Not monergism. We could please God, Clement 62, 2. And so pleasing is a disposition change. God is uh, can be pleased more than he is currently um, by by our actions, by our efforts. We could give God something that he does not have. Of course, this is not as Paul was talking about on in uh, Athens, right? He's not talking about we we could build God a house that God doesn't have. We could feed God. This was their idea about idols. You leave this food out for the idols to consume. You pour this wine out on the ground, and that's the gods consuming them. God doesn't need those things. Uh, But God can't have our love without us. God can't have our praise without us. God can receive benefit from his creation. We can please God in Clement. Then, of course, we're going to be ending where we basically started in the list of praises of God. God is the all-seeing God, the master of spirits, Lord of all. And the list goes on, but we are pretty deep into this. Uh, Clement of Rome, definitely, 100%, guaranteed, open theist. This is his idea of God. God lives in heaven. God uh, watches the world from heaven. God sees all events on earth. It's an act of surveillance. At, uh, it's not like God predicts all future events. God sees what's happening and then reacts to events as they're happening. He tests and searches the hearts of men to see what they're up to, to see what they're doing, see what uh, their proclivities are and reacts accordingly. In Clement, of course, God is good. God is the uttermost good. He's very serene, I'd say. God is in control of himself and in control of the universe for that matter. He sets up this universe to work like clockwork. Nothing transgresses his bounds, except for there's one chaotic element, that is humankind. Humankind can transgress God. And throughout uh, this this, uh, letter, this letter of Clement of Rome to the Corinthians, people do violate God's will all the time. They need to bring themselves in line with what the Almighty God, ruler of the universe, has eternally decreed. Mankind needs to align ourselves with God's vision and God's strategy. All people have sinned and you are saved through your allegiance to God, allegiance to Yahweh, uh, worship of uh, God and and 
actively doing his commandments, following his moral dictates. If you are neglecting one of those two things, uh, you might be in trouble. You might actually be part of the number of elect and then fall away. Uh, God, they pray for God to guard that number such that you don't. You might sin without your knowledge. You might sin through the efforts of the adversary. The adversary might trick you into sinning. Uh, God is asked to make sure and sure that doesn't happen. Make sure that people aren't sinning out of ignorance or being drawn away by enemies. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, as Clement writes, that uh, he'd rather them repent. This is God's, God's command, God's will. Clement believes, of course, in a divine book, a list of names of people who are saved. This is a dynamic book. Names are added. Names are removed as people fall in and out of the number. And this book, the names in the book, will be used to populate the kingdom of God on earth. We are awaiting a restored earth and a resurrection from the dead. This is Clement's theology. Clement of Rome, definitely an open theist. Got questions, comments on this podcast? Put them down in the YouTube comments. Uh, hit like, I don't know, subscribe. I don't know if you guys are still listening after like an hour and a half, but subscribe, I guess. I don't know. Or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.